Hello and welcome back. What an episode we have in store for us today. I was very fortunate to be able to sit down and chat to Steve Harrison, advertising industry legend. Me and Steve spoke about his career, his delayed start and getting into advertising. didn't become uh, an ad worker until he was 30. He'd experienced life first and the sort of pros and cons of that journey that he took. We spoke about how to do good works, drawing on things from his book, how to do better creative work. Also things about the creative process and what advertising should achieve. And towards the end of our chat, we started speaking about a couple of things that Steve discusses in his book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, uh, Steve's observations about where the ad industry is going wrong. I really hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with it. Thanks again to Steve for coming on, and I hope you enjoy. Why don't we start with your background into your career? So you didn't go the traditional route into advertising, you quite late what was that like um yeah i didn't start in advertising until i was 29 and i did i did it by accident i had spent most of my time well all of my time in academia i'd done a doctor an ma and then a doctorate and i had paid my way through my doctorate through a series of um what would you call a menial, menial, you know, kind of like uh, unskilled labor, really. I mean, I got a bit of gardening for which I had no talent, but I enjoyed it a great deal. Bar work. I ran my own business. Um, um, <laughs> I predated Pret-a-Manger by, anticipated Pret-a-Manger by 20 years, by setting up my own sandwich business. Um and um, so, you know, I kind of, I, I lived hand to mouth essentially until I graduated with my PhD and then moved down to London um, and was told by a recruitment consultant that I was unmarketable. Uh, and in desperation, um, I answered an advertisement in, in a secretarial free magazine asking for researchers researchers required at something called Ogilvy and Mather Direct. I had no idea what they did or what they what, what they were. I'd like to say that I, you know, kind of did the full due diligence on them and genned up on them. But this was pre-internet days, right? You know, there was no Google. Um, and there was no means of doing that kind of research. So I rocked up, didn't know what they did, but I was lucky. I was really fortunate that they decided that they would take a punt upon a, I assume they must have felt that I had an interesting background and I had a modicum of intelligence, but, and they recognized how desperate I was. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. desperation is a, is a, is a very, you know, a big driver you know, kind of to when people want a job and need a job, you know, um, and if they've got a bit of talent, then it's it's quite a good combination, desperation and talent. Yeah, it's um, the great motivator, desperation. Completely. Yeah. Uh, So So that's how I got the job. Uh, But I got the job as the researcher. I wasn't a writer at that stage. Okay, so how did you, how did, yeah, how did you manage to convince them to make the jump from researcher to... Well, I had to write uh, market research reports. If, so, for example, we were pitching for Xerox, I would have to do research reports on Canon and Mitsubishi and, 
Hewlett Packard or whatever, whoever else was in, you know, the competitive market. So I enjoyed doing those kind of things. Um, I was also asked by the creative de department. I used to like, I, the suits would ask me all manner of stuff, but the creatives occasionally would come down and ask me, you know, just to get, gather some background information that wasn't in the brief um, on stuff. And I really enjoyed working with the, with the creatives. And then the executive creative director and the vice chairman of the whole group, global group, Michael Drayton Bird, had read some of my reports and he said, do you want to be a writer? He said, you don't look very happy. And I said, well, that's my natural disposition. Uh, but he said, that's my resting face, I said, or words to that equivalent. I don't think I knew what a resting face was in those days. Um, and then he said, do you want to be a writer? And I said, yeah, well, I, I wouldn't mind. Yes, please. He said, I'll give you six months. And if you're not making me any money by then, I'll fire you. So that was it. So that's how I got my start. I was 30, I was 30 years of age by then. Obviously, I mean, the six months must have gone well and it's ran into a lot more. Do you think you had um, an advantage or a different way of thinking maybe because you came in late and because you came from academia and also because I guess you started, so you started off researching, so you knew or you're aware much more of the, the background information of these companies. Um, do you think that helped your copywriting and helped like the way you thought? About um, it was a bit, I, I would say, a, a distinct advantage, the, the being 30 years of age, in that whilst it was, it didn't really embarrass me being a 30, the, 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 the 30 year old junior surrounded by 21 and 22 year old creatives, you know, it didn't, it didn't embarrass me that much. I should have done, I suppose. Um, but they'd all, well, most of them had been to college and studied advertising. And I figured that I could catch them up if I read a lot, you know, if I studied my craft, then I could catch them up. But there's no way that those 21 or 22 year olds could catch me up in the experience of life. You know, because as I said, I'd, I'd worked in, I'd, I'd lived from hand to mouth, I'd worked behind bars, I'd worked, I'd, I'd had my own business, I'd had my, I'd, I'd had it closed down, I'd suffered that disappointment, but all of life's vicissitudes, you know, I've suffered many of those, you know, I'd had my, my heart broken, friends of mine had died, you know, kind of um, through mental health issues and, and drug problems and whatever, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of, I'd, um, I'd, I'd, I'd experienced life to a much greater depth and degree than the children who were in the department you know? and and so I you know kind of unless I was writing to 21 and 22 year olds I would be at a disadvantage but because I was writing to people of an old usually older people you know kind of um, then it was it was a I, I had the advantage over them because I could empathize you see and, and empathy is the great the great quality that you need as a as an as an advertising person. Yeah, you touched on that quite a lot um, in your books um, about being empathetic to the reader and sort of understanding yeah. who you're talking to, what they think, what their problem is, is what the problems are, um, and how you do. You think that's the sort of the key of copywriting is understanding 
what word, what language, you know, the target um, consumer probably uses and what, you know, what's the, what are the problems at the forefront of their... Um, yes, yes, I think so. Um, they, I mean, our, our I think of, as I, I, I used to get the brief, I used to get briefs from the, um, from the suits at Ogilvy and made the direct and they would, the, if there was a proposition and you understand the importance of the proposition, it is the, it's the, it's the promise you're making with the product. It's why you, anyone should bother buying it in the first place. You know, why your prospects should be interested in buying it. And the propositions on the briefs would be, you know, for extra peace of mind or for greater flexibility or, or some, or, you know, some empty platitude or other, which wouldn't really give you any sense of what to say to the audience in order to make them interested in what you were trying to sell them. So I, um, I used to write my own briefs and I started off by asking two questions. And the first one was, what is the problem being faced by the prospect at the moment? And what is the solution provided by the product or service that I am selling. And that was essentially, you know, kind of once I'd nailed that, I knew what the ad would be about. So what's the problem? And it would, it would obviously would have to be a problem <laughs> the prospect was having within the context of the, of the, of the, of the, yeah, ad, yeah. Of, the of the job in hand, you know, it wasn't, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so and then I so I would then try and write. Well, what's the problem, and what is the solution provided? And, and so it's how can this thing be of some use to this person? And once you've nailed that, then you're in you're 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 in a, you're, you're you're more likely to be saying something to them that might interest them, and might elicit elicit the response. Bloody hell, that would be useful to me. Tell me more. Yeah, I like the um, the other idea from um, your books that you touch uh, touch upon, which is the the two the one you know you need two big ideas, one marketing idea, yeah, and uh, one creative idea. With the marketing idea being so that's targeting the problem that they're facing, right? Um, how do we? What are we actually? What's the yeah. actual problem that we're solving? And then the creative idea is how do we? You say it's either demonstrate it or... The creative idea, the, the creative, once you, once the brief has been written and the promise has been made, which proceeds from the problem solution, which will, which will be, if you buy this product, you will have this benefit, essentially. Your life will be improved. And it could be, I'm hastened to add that it could be a practical benefit, but it, it is just as likely, if not more so, to be a psychological benefit. You know, um, so it could be a rational benefit or it could be an emotional benefit. Um, but you also, I hasten to add, then need to have the facts beneath that to support why you are making that promise, right? You know, you can't just promise something and then say, go to the website and find out, you know, which is what a lot of advertising does. Um, you've got to have some <laughs> basis in truth, you know, uh, or, or be able to prove or indicate 
that there is some empirical evidence to back up the claim that you are making. And that is, again, that's, that's got to be provided by the, 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 the efficacy of the, of the product or service that you're selling, you know, uh, and the facts that demonstrate that efficacy. So what was, you, what was your take or what is your take on, um, you know, there's some adverts out there which are, you know, have no copy at all. Either they're just yeah. purely an image or a piece of brand. Do you think they're less effective because they don't have the sort of the backup? Um, that was, well, I mean, one of my favorite ads of all time. And if you see if you can try and find it, but it, gosh, it must be 20 years ago now. And it was of a Mercedes SK, I think it was, parked on a street. And next to it were a series of skid marks, right? Where people had, where people had, had screeched to a halt in order to see it. And I think that that said plenty without any words, you know? And I think there's a certain satisfaction to be derived from working out what that means. Yeah. So I like, I mean, I'm so, again, there's, you know, kind of, it, it, it's horses for courses. You know, if, if the idea is clever enough, you know, kind of then cool. Yeah. Um, but I would, I personally, I think that achieving that, 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 uh, Communicating that message in just a shot is rare and difficult. Um, and the majority of instances you'll have, I would make use of the tools that you have at your disposal. And that is, you know, in this case, a image and a headline. And my sense would be that one of those, one of either the image or the headline has got to be so interesting that it arrests the attention of the prospect to the degree that they notice that 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 ad your communication um even though it is surrounded by myriad other communications but they notice yours and i would suggest that very most of the time that arresting element is the visual and most of the time, the thing that makes that arresting element meaningful is the headline. Does that make sense? So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The tandem, yeah. The, the catches the eye, and the, the copy and sort of informs them. But um, yeah, makes it links it back to the product and makes it. Um, yes, I call it. Um, in my books, as you probably know, relevant abruption. And an abruption is a sudden, unexpected impact that your communication has upon your prospect that arrests their attention. And the, But it's got to be relevant. And the abruption is, as I say, very often the visual element of the ad. And then the relevant bit is the headline part of the ad. So the headline will then make clear what they are seeing and how it is relevant to them and their needs. Do you think this that 
balance and the, the struggle for attention and the struggle for abruption, do you think it's as harder um, as people spend more and more time online, on their phones, scrolling social media? Is it harder and harder to get people's attention or is it just it's always been difficult and it's now just the same challenge? I think it's difficult. Um, it, it, I, I, I think it's easier to get someone's attention with a 48-sheet poster um, you know, on the side of a building than it is to get someone's attention with a with the same idea on your on a mobile phone screen, you know. Of course it's I, I would have thought. I, I have nothing to I've got no evidence to to back that up apart from common sense that uh forty eight sheet poster, you know, kind of um is all is as uh, as a more dominant is a dom more dominating presence than a, a a something you know kind of eight one and a half inches by one inch you know on your screen. Yeah, I think if you look into any of the data by um, there's like Lumen who do mm -hmm. eye tracking software for when people scrolling, yes, they will definitely sure. back you up on that. Yeah. It's like the attention span we have for a piece of content, especially. Um, you know, like if you're scrolling and you notice something as an advert, I think even more, even quicker than we would go through normal content, if you like, on social media, people are, you know, even more almost irritated by it. And it's like, a, oh, you know, go away and instantly yeah. swipe through it. It's, it's, I, yeah. well, I would argue with you on that front that, or any ad that, you see, I, a great hero of mine was a man called Howard Gossage, who said, uh, people read what interests them and sometimes it's an ad. And yeah, I what it. I always inferred from that is that kind of don't try and compete against other ads. It's not enough doing something that's better than the other advertising in the, in the, in the medium you are working with. You've got to do something that's as interesting as the content within that medium. Okay, so, yeah. so I kind of take exception to your sense that, well, when people see it's an ad, they just scroll through it. Um, but, but it looks like an ad because it, it isn't saying anything directly to them. It just looks like a piece of mass communication, which is, which is no interest to them. If it was interesting, they wouldn't scroll through it, you know. If, yeah, I would say yeah, it's not it's not um, it's not a guarantee they'll scroll through it. But I feel like um, you're you're already facing an uphill battle. Maybe it's maybe harder to break through as an ad. But then I guess your point would be well, it wouldn't be you know the only reason we feel like that or I feel like that or people feel like that is because what they have read. Yeah, I think so, Kieran. Interesting. Yeah, I mean it's always been difficult. You know, kind of um, ads that. Talk in like ads that look like ads that you know that, that, that yeah it's stuff that doesn't that, yeah stuff that isn't particularly engaging you know kind of um, yeah. which is ninety percent of most advertising and has always been ninety percent of most advertising yeah you know, kind of won't get read won't get looked at. Yeah, if it sticks out as an advert. Uh, yeah, well, if it looks like advertising, if it talks to people like, you know, kind of like, 
like an ad does to you, you know. Do you understand? Um, I'm not sure I'm expressing If you make no attempt to, yeah, you've got, if it, if it isn't saying something interesting, you know, if it's just saying the best just got better, or tomorrow's technology today, or seeing is believing, or expect the unexpected, you know, kind of, and talks to people with the idiom, in the idiomatic way, which exists only in the form of advertising. You don't see those phrases anywhere in, in, in communication. Yeah. No apart from in advertising, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speech people, um, there's always, you know, the, the advertising thing of speak yeah. in the language that they talk to or you know, speak to them like speak to them. Uh, it is weird that, um, for example, in the most recent Audi advert, which is future is an attitude, which is just that's their, their right. tagline they've gone with. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what that means. I have no fucking idea what that means. Yeah. You know, I'm very pleased. Any, any advertising that elicits the response, I'm very pleased for you, you know, you know, kind of, because you're obviously, you know, kind of living a, you know, you're obviously um, talking to yourself here. The future, I mean, this is Audi as well. They used to, they, used to, they, they are, whatever I'm, yeah, yeah, they used to do good ads. Good God, the future is an attitude. Well, not if you're you're one of the million people who've just been thrown out of work as a result of COVID nineteen. It might be an attitude, you know, yeah. uh, but the attitude you adopt when you've just been thrown out of work is one of misery and desperation. But I don't think that's what Audi are talking about, is it? I, I no, don't think that's what they're trying to get at. No, probably not. It feels a a touch out of. Um... Place, I guess. So, yeah, do you think too much ad work is done by ad people for ad people? Um, is too much advertising is done by ad. Or maybe for a war? Um, that's a good question, and I will answer it in two ways. Um, firstly, uh, you know how I said that you should ask these two questions what is the problem being faced by my prospect, and what is the solution provided by the product? Well, I think that a lot of agencies answer it in this way. They have their own version of that, and that is, what is the question faced by my client, and what is the solution provided by the advertising that I'm going to make? Okay. And what they do is they then rock up and they, they present ads to the client, which make the client feel that their marketing problem has been addressed and then therefore solved. Ultimately, it ends up bigging up the client's product and making the client feel good about the product, but the advertising is talking to the client and ignoring the customer. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you get stuff like the best just got better, you know, and the client goes, wow, are you talking about, yes, yes, the best just got better. Hmm, yes. Or tomorrow's technology today. Oh, yes, yes, I, I can see that. <laughs> or the art of, and then you just fill in whatever category the client is in, you know, the art of Italian design or the art of, you know, kind of uh, luxury travel or the art of shaving or the art of tea making, you know, and they go, yeah, yeah, this is, yes. But, but the advertising is all about the client. 
Okay, so that's one way in which, I'd, and that that probably accounts for more bad advert, explains more bad advertising than any rationale that I can think of. To be quite honest, um, the client buys it, the client loves it, and nobody else is remotely aware of its existence. Okay, and then the other one is that creatives create for themselves. You know, kind of uh, they live in a bubble. The creatives they're spared the realities of the advertising agency life you know kind of they roll in when they used to turn in for work at all they'd rock up at about 9 30 10 o'clock you know kind of go straight into their office or into the shared area and play a bit of pool and you know kind of um whatever by which time by which time the fresh supply of compromises had already been delivered to the agency and been accepted by the suits and the managers and whatever, you know. So, but the creatives are kind of protected from those realities. Um, and all they're asked to do is to come up with an idea every week or every four days or every two weeks around this particular brief with no great... I don't think any great understanding or interest in whether that idea will work. I spoke to, I listened to a podcast by James Barrow and he was interviewing the woman who is in charge of Give a Crap, which is a environmentally friendly toilet paper. And she was saying that when she worked at Iris, the agency in London, it never occurred to her that what she was doing had any role in the business objectives of the client who had commissioned the work. No idea at all, never occurred to her. And I don't think she's alone, you know. Um, and then that kind of sense of detachment is exacerbated by the awards system, which gives awards, for, most of the award shows do not take into account effectiveness. So you can win an award for a piece of work that might even have damaged the health of the business. You know, no one checks. No one, oh, it probably may never have run for one thing, but if it did run, did it actually sell anything? And no one, no one, you know, the awards juries could give a fly, could, couldn't care less whether it had run or not or whether it had actually worked or not. But as long as it pleased their aesthetic judgment, met with their met, met with their approval aesthetically, creatively, then it was going to get an award. And I'm afraid that you know, kind of, you know, kind of human nature being what it is, other people in creatives look at the annuals for the award shows and they see what won last year and they copy it. Hmm. You end up in this formulaic situation where yeah, very formulaic i'm afraid an industry that prides itself upon its maverick creativity is um is actually slavish slavishly follows the formula that the uh that the award shows uh highlight as being exemplary hmm. so how do we how do we break this I mean, if we go back to your, your first example where you talk about advertising that's focused on the client's problems rather than the consumer's problems, how do you avoid that happening? Because if you're an agency, you know, yeah. it can be all very well and good and you can say, well, all our work is going to focus on 
the consumer's problems and not the client's problems, but if the client keeps buying work that, you know, makes them feel warm and fuzzy inside yeah. with, as you said, the sort of, the sort of pith, the pithy, um, the pithy slogans and so on, how do we, you know, how do you stop clients buying stuff that makes them feel good? And how do we teach them that this is not how you do effective advertising? You're actually just buying, you know, you're buying work that makes you feel good rather than the consumer. Well, a lot of agencies don't want to disavow the clients of, of this, you know, it's easier to just rock up with the best just got better or tomorrow's technology today. It's easier to write an, a, an ad or a campaign that, 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 that bigs up the product, you know, but doesn't, you know, kind of, you, you're, you're preaching to somebody who's already aware of the product, right? You know, yeah. and, and somebody who already likes the product when you're selling an ad to a client that yeah. talks up the, up the, up the product. Yeah. Um, it's a lot easier doing that than actually trying to reach out to a prospect who may not even be aware that the product exists and trying to stop them in a marketplace, which is so crowded with a, with a, with a communication, which makes them notice you makes them engage with the communication and then gets them to do what you want them to do. That's a lot more difficult. So for, for as long as agencies can get away with just, you know, kind of pleasing the client, you know, kind of then, and it's easier to sell, you know, kind of, it's difficult to sell an idea that, I mean, the client is expecting you to solve their marketing problems with their advertising. You know, when you rock up with something that doesn't say the best just got better, which actually talks directly to the consumer rather than them, it's, they, they, they feel nervous about that, you know? Yeah. So I don't know how do you stop yeah. it. I don't think a lot of, I don't think there are many agencies with any intention of stopping doing that, to be quite honest, Karen. Just got to try and, um, I guess, you just got to try and convince them of, you know, the merit of, if you improve your, you know, you target the consumer, you improve their lives, then in turn, your own marketing problem. Exactly. Exactly. If you, if you can convince the consumer that you can solve their problems with this product service, ergo, you will have solved your client's problems. And then onto the awards, how do we, you know, what's, the, is there a solution to stopping awards being so you know, aesthetic based and back into more effective based is, do we need, you know, would changing up the judges every year so that there's no formula for success, would that help? Do, do we need simply do awards need to come with, you know, do they need to publish how effective each ad was? Well, it would help. It would help, but don't hold your breath, you know, kind of, I mean, um, you know, kind of, um, yeah, you don't hold your breath about that. And the same, and you see, you've got a globalized, you know, it's a very globalized industry, you know. You've got all of the global, you know, kind of uh, the, the global creative directors and the executive creative directors who are all based in London and in San Francisco and in Los Angeles and in New York and in, you know, kind of like, Sydney and in Hong Kong and in kind of all of the major advertising centers and they all contribute their judges to the award show juries, but they all share the same mentality, you know, 
They, they work for globalized businesses, primarily. They work in a globalized industry, you know, kind of. Um, and so what they do is they impose their, they impose their set of standards upon the region. You know, they, uh, I mean, the advertising that they think is great would not work in Aberdeen or Stirling or Newcastle or Middlesbrough. You know, kind of, but it works in Sao Paulo and it works in San Francisco and it works in Sydney, right? Or it would appear to work there, you know, kind of, uh, because, because the people in the agencies think it would work there. Do you understand what I mean? That it's a globalized yeah, business. Big city agencies creating big cities. Yes, exactly. And trying to sell to people who don't live yeah. necessarily in big yeah. cities. Well, not take, absolutely taking no account of whether it would work in those, whether it would, it wouldn't work in, in the provinces out in the boondocks, you know? Yeah. And how does, you know, is there a way forward for changing that? Do we need to, do agencies need to move their offices or have outposts, you know, in amongst the man of the people, if you like, do they need to, you know, lower themselves to the man on the street and get more involved? in how the, the lay person lives their life instead of living the sort of um, big city life um, which can be quite insular. I don't, I don't know how you do it. I mean, there's a great push for ethnic and gender diversity, but there's not a lot of interest in, a, in the age class and, um, and experience of life diversity, which I think is, is equally, if not, as in, equally important, you know. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a great push for, um, yeah, for the diversity of experience and diversity of opinion and cultural diversity. Um, so the, a lot of the time, the diversity that that the people in the advertising industry are arguing for isn't actually diversity of opinion. They just want people from different backgrounds who share the same opinions as them. You know, kind of BAME, the, uh, we, I think 13% of the people who work in the industry are of a BAME background. Um, uh, but uh, something like 70% of the people who work in the industry with a BAME background were privately educated. Right? So we've got 13% of people in the industry from a BAME background, um, uh, but 70% but of them were privately educated. So they're not representative of the majority of people um, you know, kind of with a, from a black, Asian, mixed ethnicity background at all. They're just a bunch of middle class. They're just as middle class. In fact, they're even more educated, affluent middle class than the, than the, than the white majority who work in the industry, who are overwhelmingly affluent and middle class, by the way. Yeah. So you think there, um, we've got a, a gap in almost we've got a class diversity issue as much as we as much as there is any other sort of yes um, yes i do yeah we need to connect more with 
the everyday people because yeah i guess the sort of as you touch on in your book um you know can't sell won't sell that we've you feel like advertising's lost its touch with the common man and uh, the layperson the people that people are speaking to aren't being represented um, in advertising so how can their their viewpoints their lives their problems be represented in the advertising world they go yeah with? yeah yeah it's um i don't think there's we, we because we have lost touch with those people and have no great intention of regaining uh of, of um building bridges to them there was a tweet by a very eminent strategist called Rob Campbell, who was glorying in the fact that a client had agreed to one of the one of the measures of effectiveness was that the communication provoked anger from the editorial desk of the Daily Mail. Um, now I don't know. Maybe the the the, the product and being sold was the Guardian newspaper or whatever, possibly, possibly. I hope it was something with, uh, that was being sold on the strength of its uh, left-wing and progressive credentials. You know, that, it, that that was a key part of its, of, it, uh, of its positioning. But I suspect it wasn't. And, I, and the, the fact, and it wasn't divulged what the product or service was, but the number of people who tweeted their, their admiration for this from the advertising industry, who thought this was a brilliant idea to piss off the Daily Mail. Uh, in other words, to piss off, you know, a representative of mainstream British society. You know? Yeah, it seems odd that um, any a metric of success would be outrage on any yeah. side by anyone. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that you can, you know, we've annoyed some yeah. people um, as a metric of as a metric of success seems a little bit backwards, given that advertising should, you know, you know, you're trying to speak to as many people as possible. There's, you know, anyone can be a potential customer. It seems odd to alienate, um, celebrate as well, alienating a decent percentage of. The UK population. I don't know what percent. Read the yeah. email, but so it uh, um, I think I would have twisted that and said that the metric should be to delight a certain cohort within society, yes. rather than yes. to yes. to disgust a certain cohort in society. I don't think advertising is good when it, it sets out to be divisive. Um, I don't. I'm not. I, I, um, um, Orlando Wood, who works for, who has written a great book called Lemon, Why the Advertising Brain Has Turned Sour. And he's, he, his day job is to study advertising effectiveness. And he says that advertising that sets out to be divisive is, it, it, it struggles to be effective. And you know, it isn't effective. It, yeah, your point of, you can yeah you can target certain um, demographics or people or whatever or you know customer bases but yeah targeting them in a in praising what you're targeting them for rather than bringing down yeah. what they're not um, is definitely a yeah. better way to go about it. So changing gear into a bit yeah, of advice sure. for students as a student myself, obviously, you must have seen I mean thousands upon thousands of books, portfolios, and whatever else. How do you, you know, what stands out? How do you stand out um, as a student applying for internships, for jobs, um, for award shows? How do you, you know, 
how do you stand out? Um, I, I, I am reluctant to give you any hard and fast advice on this because you see, I have not been involved in this industry now. I've not been a creative director for many years. But when I was a creative director, there was a consensus upon what a good ad looked like. Okay. You know, kind of, um, I mean, that, you know, there was this consensus within the industry, what a good piece of advertising looked like, you know, kind of, and I'm not sure that my views are now shared by the creative directors who you will be approaching. You know, I don't know whether there is a consensus on what good advertising is anymore. Okay. You know, there were half a dozen great agencies in London who you would say this, you know, you, you know, kind of, you know, the Abbott Mead Vickers, the whole Henry's, the mothers, um, you know, kind of the Ligas Delaney's, the MNC Satches, you know, kind of um, TBWA, you know, kind of, there were half a dozen very, very good agencies, maybe a dozen. And, you know, kind of BBH, BMP, you know, kind of, and, and, and their work was exemplary. Okay. I'm not sure you could point at half a dozen agents. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not doubting this. I, I am genuine, genuinely not sure you could point at half a dozen agencies now whose work is of a standard that you would say this is the level at which we must now be pitching. And then and what I used to look for was work that, that clearly this, the person who, I was, who, who was looking for a job with me understood the criteria by which... I, by which good advertising was judged, if you understand, you know, they, 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 it's a terribly nebulous phrase to say, but this, this, this team got it, you know, they got it, you know, and people, and you hired people who got it. And their ads may not have been great, but if they got it and they looked like they aspired to be doing good work, then I used to hire them, but I'm not quite sure whether that happens anymore. Um, and I, I mean, my advice to you would be to fill your book with work that showed you could sell things that actually had a commercial purpose to them. But again, I'm not sure you would get a job with that, Kieran. It's, and I, I'm, you know, I don't want to depress you, but I do think that creative directors are so misguided and have, 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 uh, so enthralled to the fashion of the moment that they will be looking for work with a social purpose. And, and, and you'll be competing against loads of students or whatever with book, a book full of cause-related advertising. Now, for me, I would, I, would, I would go the other way and I would have a book full of stuff that attempted to sell things, you know, just to prove that I was capable of doing that. So um, I, it's it's difficult. I I don't. I'm not typical of the of a creative director you would find now. I don't think. But what I would do, and this advice I would give you, if is if you want to work, two two pieces of contradictory advice. The first is, don't set your heart on being a copywriter. Get a job in an agency doing anything. You know, like I did. You know, and once you've got a, your feet under the door, then prove that you are a valuable member of the team 
and and let you and then angle your way into working in the creative department. The other the reason why I say this is contradictory is is if you do want to work in a in a in a for a particular agency, then it is a lot it will be a lot more effective for you to do scamps of ads that handle accounts that that creative director works with on a daily basis. So you have done an ad, you know, if that agency has such and such a client, you know, can then do an ad that sells that client's product, attempts to sell that client's products or services. Because, you know, do, do, do work that reflects what that agency is. Creative director that, you know, kind of will be intrigued to see ads, your attempt to improve upon the work that his, his department is doing. And it also indicates that you care enough to have done your homework and to have tried to do something that is pertinent to her or him, right? Rather than just doing mass yeah. advertising, yeah. which might just on the off chance appeal to her or him. Thank you very much for coming on and speaking with me today. It's That's a pleasure. pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. They were in, uh, it was a, it was an, in, it was nice talking to you. Good questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much. Um, you can get Steve's books on Amazon. I will link them all in the show notes below. I've read two and three quarters of them, and they're all excellent. Especially um, "Can't Sell, Won't Sell," uh, which is the most recent one. Um, it's great. So oh. well done on the books, and yeah. I will Thank you for that plug. Thank you very much indeed. Good luck.